If you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be finishing up this first chapter in a letter that we're going to be studying together as a church through the end of the year. Uh, We're a couple weeks into it now, and uh, it's going to carry us all the way up through the Advent season. So we're going to take our time and really dig down into the details of it. And, And... that's going to continue today in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, basically the second half of the chapter. At the heart of Christianity is not a lifestyle that we're called to, though Christianity does have implications for how we live our lives. It's not a lifestyle. At the heart of Christianity is a message. And at the heart of the message, at the heart of Christianity, is the cross of Jesus. That there, in that violent, bloody death, Jesus was punished by God in our place because of our sin. Here's one of my favorite summaries of the heart of the message at the heart of Christianity. It's a summary by a, by a now dead British pastor named John Stott. Here's the way he puts it. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, that's sin. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That's the message at the heart of Christianity. And here's the brutal, honest, inescapable truth. That is a message that from the beginning has been ridiculous to the powers that be. I think one of the things we tend to do as modern people is assume what we're guilty of what I believe it was C.S. Lewis that called chronological snobbery of assuming that people in ancient times were much more easily duped than we are. That, of course, people then found it easy to believe that Jesus, that Jesus was some sort of punishment for human sin and that in his resurrection he actually came back to life again. But modern people know better, right? We live on this side of Newton and Einstein. Well, that's hardly true. This message was foolishness even when it first appeared on the scene. I want to read you something from one of the earliest critics of Christianity whose, whose writings have survived to us. This was a guy named Celsus who wrote a, a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years after Jesus uh, had, had, had ascended to heaven. And he, he hammered Christianity. He thought it was ridiculous. And here's what he said. He thought, he thought that the cross of Jesus was ridiculous on its, on its own, just the idea that God would, would punish his son to pay for the sins of somebody else. But he was also taken up with how, really, it, it was only appealing to the lowly of the world and the foolish. He said, basically, the only people that teachers of this divine word wish to make converts, he also said, are the foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children. No offense, ladies. That was 1,800 years ago, and not a lot has changed since then. The cross of Christ has been foolish in every generation since Paul, and it's just as foolish today. I read this morning a quote. I'm not sure exactly when or in what context this quote came. It was by uh, actually a minister of the Church of England who told listeners on a BBC radio program that the crucifixion of Jesus for the sins of the world is, quote, pretty repulsive as well as nonsensical, and he goes on to elaborate. 
what sort of God was this? Getting so angry with the world and the people he created and then to calm himself down, demanding the blood of his own son. And anyway, why should God forgive us through punishing somebody else? It's worse than illogical. It was insane. It made God sound like a psychopath. If any human being behaved like this, we would say they were a monster. That's, that's the very Reverend Jeffrey John, minister of the Church of England. I'm pretty sure that there's even some of you sitting out here today that kind of resonate with what this guy says, right? I'm definitely sure that there are people in here, including myself, who have felt it at one time or another. The notion that, that human sin is so big a deal that it requires divine punishment, that all this violence and all this blood is necessary, it seems so primitive. And at the very worst, even if it's not primitive, it can seem impractical. Like, what good does that do me? All this talk of the gospel, of the cross, can seem like distant and abstract and just very separated from the world that, that we live in. And, and therefore, all of us at one level or another, whether this is true for you today or has been true in your past, I think it's safe to say all of us on one level or another have found the cross hard to believe or at the very least hard to love, hard to value and appreciate. And if that's where you have been, if that's where you are now, in other words, for all of you, our passage today is meant for you. Our passage today is all about the foolishness of the cross. It will not try to remove the sense that the cross is foolish from you. It may not get you exactly what you're looking for, but I don't think you'll be able to think about this problem, this foolishness problem, in the same way after a careful look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31. Now, this passage comes on the heels of Paul's main driving concern right now in his letter, and that is to get people to stop separating from each other in his church. He's tired of them lining up behind the, their favorite leader. They'd started using these writers and teachers as, as sort of uh, parts of their portfolio of their own self-branding, how they knew who they were and why they mattered and why they were different from other people and better than other people in the church. And Paul's telling them, he got to the end of our passage last week, Haven't you, have you forgotten that I didn't come trying to make you think I was wise? I came only preaching the cross of Jesus, and that's a foolish message. So who are you to think that you should build your community and separate it and build your own, separate amongst it and build your own identity based on the wisdom of the cross? It's not wise. It's, it's ridiculous to those who really care about wisdom. So that's, that's the context of the letter. Today, it's, it's almost like an aside for him. He wants to drill down and make sure they understand what the gospel is about, why it appears foolish, so that, they, so that later he can come back to his original problem and say... You don't get to separate within the church over who you think is wise because that's not what it's about. It's about what God does for you. And God has set up this whole system to make the point that it is not for the wise, those who are good enough and smart enough to figure it out. It is for those, Christianity is for those whom God by his free grace decides to save by what seems foolish and powerless to us. What we want to do is unpack this message in two steps. There's two paragraphs in our passage that we're about to read. And the first unfolds what Paul means when he says that the gospel or the word of the cross is foolish. We want to ask why the cross seems foolish to us. Make sure we understand what he isn't saying, what he is saying there. Why the cross seems foolish. And then we want to ask, why has God chosen 
this foolish message to save people by? Why does it seem foolish? And then why did God do this on purpose? Why did he choose to save by a foolish message? Those are the two steps we're going to take today, the two steps that our, our passage takes. Now, I want to read it for you. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and read to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm going to start with the foolishness of God. Why the cross seems foolish to us. That's the theme that ties together verses 18 to 25 in our passage, the first paragraph. Here's the short answer, and I'm going to unpack it for you. Why the cross seems foolish to us. Here's the answer. Because it tells us that what we need is not what we're looking for. What we need is not what we're looking for. Now I want to unpack this. We need to get really clear here on what Paul doesn't mean when he admits in the first couple verses that the cross is foolishness. This has been misapplied and you can see why it could be. It's this almost anti-intellectual thing. Like Christians just don't care about careful thinking cross is always going to be foolish. You may as well throw up our hands. That isn't what he means. Uh, it's not the message itself. It's not, that it's, it's not that this message itself is irrational. Okay, here's one thing it doesn't mean. It's not that it's irrational, like it's a, a contradiction in logic. It's not like it's saying that if you have six M&Ms and you take away two of them, you have five of them left, right? It'll be a contradiction in logic, and that's foolish, Right? That's not what he means. It's also not, it's also not what we might call a physical uh, a foolishness in the, in the terms of the physical world, the physical impossibility. It's not a logical impossibility. It's not a physical impossibility. So it would be foolish for me to say that the world is flat. Right? We know that that's not true anymore. And there's a kind of ridiculousness to thinking that it is. 
or that, the, or, or, or that I could fly. That if I took a running jump and jumped off these steps, that I could fly. That is a physical impossibility. It's a kind of foolishness. And that's not what he means. I think many unbelievers who are struggling intellectually with Christianity, when they think of Christianity as something that's foolish, these are the categories they have in mind. Contradictions in logic. Contradictions in what's possible physically in the world. Material possibilities. And if that's where you're hung up this morning, if you think that Christianity isn't possible for you because it's foolish or illogical on the terms of of the physical world or, or just sheer logic, then I would love to talk to you about that because I think there are some good answers that can be given to your questions. There are a couple books I'd love to put in your hands. Um, we can talk, okay? But that's not the direction that this passage is going to take us this morning. Rather, this passage is taking us in, in, towards a, a different kind of foolishness that is probably even more often what we mean when we use that word. And this kind of foolishness is much more common than than logical, physical impossibility sort of foolishness. It's actually a lot closer to taste and desire. It's a lot more about what comes off as foolish depending on where you live and who you're friends with and what your friends value than, than it is a matter of logical deductions or mathematical equations. So, for example, whether or not you think it's a good idea or a foolish idea to get a Dale Earnhardt number three tattoo across your chest. I don't have one of those, by the way, but I was an Earnhardt fan. May he rest in peace. That depends, whether, that's, whether that is a wise thing or a foolish thing for you to do depends a lot on your social location, right? Who your friends are, who's likely to see you at the river with your shirt off what your friends value, what you value, what this particular action is going to communicate in your context for good or ill. It's on the level of taste and desire and plausibility that the gospel has always come off as foolish to those who are normally viewed as wise. It doesn't taste good to them. It seems implausible given what they're after, what they're looking for, what their friends value. I want to unpack this. That's the simple idea, I think, behind the first several verses. I want to point you into the verses to where I got that from and then, and then sort of help us work it into our, our own hearts a little bit more. Verses 20 and 21 pointed out. Let me, let me back up, actually. The first two verses I take, eight, eight, verse 18 and 19, is a kind of summary where the whole paragraph goes. Verse 18 announces, yep, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe. It seems ridiculous. Verse 19 says... God promised it would be. He did it on purpose. It's not an accident. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Those are the two steps we're taking in our two paragraphs. We're going to describe what it means for the gospel to be foolish. Verse 19 points us to where the rest of the, par- uh, the next paragraph goes, which is God set it up that way. He meant for it to be foolish. So look with me at verse 20 now, where he really starts to unpack what it, what it does and doesn't mean for the gospel to be foolishness. It's about what the people who are seen as wise do and do not want. Where, he says, is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe, the expert in the law? Where is the debater of this age, those who are powerful in communication, who are are good at getting people to agree with them? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's an ironic statement. Here are the people that you would think would be most likely to find their way to salvation, right? These are the ones who have got the right answers to the meaning of life, at least in their own minds. And here God has 
chosen a way of saving people through Jesus that, that none of these folks have worked their way to. It, it, far from working their way to it, they think it's ridiculous. And so God, ironically, has made those who seem the wise, he's made their, those who seem the wisest, he's taken their wisdom and he's emptied it out. And he's shown that actually their wisdom is foolishness. Verse 21 says, Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, since their attempts at figuring things out did not lead them to God and to his solution in Jesus, God is pleased through the foolishness of what we preach, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. He's pleased to save in a way that no one would have expected. Verses 22 through 24 give us even more detail about this angle. They confirm for us what Paul means by the foolishness of the cross is actually that it isn't what anybody's looking for. That's what he means by it. Here's why. Verses 22 through 24 show us why verse 21 is true. Here is why no one has found their way to God by using human wisdom, things that seem wise to us. The Jews demand signs. That's what they're looking for. And the Greeks seek wisdom, and we give them neither. We give them Christ crucified. Now these two, and it's a short verse, but in these two categories, the, the Jews and their search for signs, the Greeks and their search for wisdom, loaded into those two categories are really sort of the prototypes for all of our idolatry, for our attempts to put something else in the place of security and trust that should be reserved for God. I want to point you to how that's true. So, so first using the Jews. Here's what they're looking for and what many of us are probably looking for and why they didn't find it when they heard the cross. For the Jews, it's about signs. But more specifically than that, it's about power. That, was what, that, that power, that search for power was what's behind their demand for signs. What they were wanting, the Jews to whom Paul's referring. What they wanted was to see a Messiah, a king, come in and wipe out the Roman oppressors, to sort of lift, lift the boot of the Romans from their neck and put them in the kingdom God had promised them, to install them as rulers over God's kingdom on earth. They wanted power, and they're locked into evaluation mode. They are looking at everything that comes across their path, evaluating whether or not it has the signs that it might be the solution to their problem. Uh, you, can, you can see this even in some of the gospel stories, how Jesus was received. They wanted more signs, more signs, and were constantly asking things. You, you, the conversations are reported in the gospels, people asking things like, are you the one? Are you the one? Show us. How can I be sure that you're the one? They're in evaluation mode. I mean, at one level, you might hear this and you say, what's wrong with seeking after miracles? Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles. He must have thought there was some sort of purpose for them, and I think miracles are fine. But even Jesus was really critical of them. Even when he was doing them in the Gospels, he's often critical of, the, of their effects. He admits that these things aren't going to give you what you're looking for, that I do them and people still don't believe in me. They just want more. The point, though, isn't really whether miracles are a good thing. The point is, is what's wrong with the heart and the mind that insist on miracles for God to prove himself. That's the real point here. What the Jews are after is signs Let's, let's back up one step and say what we're all after when we seek power, displays of power, a proof, says a lot about our hearts and our minds. 
Here's one of my favorite quotes about this. This is a, a, from a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson. He's a great writer. Uh, if, you, if you're looking for something to read about the New Testament, I can recommend several of his books I think you'll enjoy. And he has this great book about this passage. And here's, what he, here's how he sums up what's really going on behind the Jews' demand for signs, and then now I'm applying it to us, behind our demand that God prove himself to us. As long as, this is Carson, I'm quoting now, as long as people are assessing him, him being God, they are in the superior position, the position of the judge. As long as they're checking out his credentials, they're forgetting that God is the one who will weigh them. As long as they're demanding signs, Jesus, if he constantly acquiesces, is nothing more than a clever performer. Turn Jesus into a sort of circus performer. Do it again. Do it again. Thus the demands for signs, Carson continues, becomes a prototype of every human condition, of every, excuse me, of every condition that human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to this God if he heals my child. I'll follow this Jesus if I can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. Sound familiar? The Jews seek signs, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's verse verse 23. And it's a stumbling block to them Because the notion of a Christ or a Messiah, of a powerful kingly figure who comes into the world to be brutally murdered in the most shameful way that that society had ever devised, the notion of a Messiah, a powerful deliverer, subjecting himself to a cross, a stumbling block is almost, to put it mildly, it makes no sense. It is a contradiction in terms. It's like Carson says, frozen steam to them. And yet here, we're told, is the power of God. The very power of God is revealed here in weakness and in shame. Friends, we've got to let this sink in on us. This is not about the Jews, right? Paul didn't mean for that to be it. It's about any of us who are always locked into evaluation mode, who are sort of seeing God as a potential spouse but being hypercritical of all of his flaws, not sure we want to make the commitment until he proves that he's never going to let us down, that, he is, that he's always going to give us what we want, that he's going to be perfectly tailored to fit our needs. Many of us have struggled to believe because God hasn't delivered us, for example, from, from some circumstance in our life that we don't like. Something that makes our lives hard, almost unbearable. One of the classic questions to ask in those situations is why in the world would God, if he really is loving, let me go through this? That that question makes sense. Do not hear me slapping you on the wrist for asking that question. Let me reframe it though and help you see what's behind that question. What's behind that question is saying, I will believe in God if God proves himself to me by taking out of my life the things that I don't like. And that posture towards God is out of step with the message of the cross. Because in the message of the cross, what we have is this, a picture drawn for us of what power, of what proof of God's love actually looks like. And it isn't pretty. Sometimes the love of God and the power of God to change us looks like death. 
we preach Christ crucified. And to those who are called power seekers, like the Jews and like us, all alike, to those who are called, Christ is the power of God. The other half of the verse points us to the Greeks and their search for wisdom. It's another kind of prototypical idol that many of us seek, where we lock in for our security in place of trusting in God and His wisdom. The Greeks seek wisdom. This is where I start getting convicted. The Greeks were known for dedicating themselves to the, to the quest for the good life. They wanted to explain the world. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these names that you know from, from late high school or college that you were forced to read. These guys are known because they were some of, the, some of the first writers in history whose writings have survived to us who dedicated their lives to figuring out the world and explaining what a good life looks like. They wanted creative and compelling ways of understanding things. That's what wisdom means here. And the notion that God himself would come into the world and die in shame, even the notion that human sin could require a punishment like this, it was, it was foolishness to the core, to people with that mindset. Among the Greeks, the, the cross wasn't even spoken of. The, the, not Jesus' cross, the cross itself as an execution method. It wasn't even spoken of in polite company. It was a symbol of debasement and primitivity. Greeks, the Greek thinkers, the philosophers were embarrassed of it. What kind of God would endure that, they would have said. What kind of stupid person would believe it? The cross isn't what anyone then or now is looking for. That's the bottom line. Yet it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 25 says, it is wiser in its foolishness than the greatest wisdom of men and it is stronger in its weakness than the greatest strength of men. And here's my takeaway from this. If, if this message of Jesus crucified for your sins isn't what you're looking for and doesn't sound right to you, if it seems ridiculous to your friends, then I'm sorry to say it isn't likely to change in some sense. It's going to stay ridiculous. It doesn't offer us any proof of its power. It doesn't offer us airtight, reasonable arguments for its relevance. I think there are great arguments against Critiques of Christianity, I mentioned that earlier. I want to talk to you about those things. But if you're looking for an airtight argument for the truth of this message, you're not going to find it. But let me at least encourage you, if I can't remove the problem of the foolishness of the cross, if that's a hang-up for you, I can't, do, I can't take that away. It's not going anywhere. But let me at least encourage you to examine what seems wise and powerful to you now. What is it? What is it that makes in your mind for the, the best path to getting what you want? Or what is it in your mind, understanding of the world, what makes for a good life? What, what is that explanation in your mind? And I want you to examine whatever that is for you. And think about this. Can whatever this thing is that explains the world to you or that holds out the promise of power for you, can it account for the fact that you're perishing? Verse 18 points us there. The 
cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's all of us in one sense. Death is going to come for us, each of us. And what does your explanation of what makes for a good life have to say about death? Or what does, what, what does the power that you're looking for, the sense of control, in whatever realm it might be, what does that power, as you define it, offer you as a way of escaping the death that you know is coming from you? Can it? Our technological mastery in this era is unmatched by anything in human history. We have medicines that others could not have even imagined. We have technologies that allow surgeries to happen without even human hands being involved. We have technical mastery that the Greeks or the Jews would have stood in awe of and probably would have said, that must be the Messiah. Look at this power. We've been trying to become that Messiah through our advancement. And yet we are no closer to stopping death than they were. And in fact, if you spend much time around the dying, if you spend much time in hospitals where they're kept alive, I think you might actually feel that this ability to keep people alive longer is death's cruel joke. Because it isn't a life at some point in the way that, that we're looking for, in the, in the sense of a good life that the, the Greeks were talking about. It's almost death getting its last laugh that we're able to keep ourselves alive as long as we do. What about communication? We've become so much more able to communicate, to, 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 to connect with each other, to communicate our ideas about what makes for wise living than at any other time in human history. Has our communication advancement made us any less prone to the selfishness that has colored all human communication from the beginning? Don't we still use social networking, for example, to, I think of even just some of the cases in the news of high school kids turning on each other on Facebook, of suicides motivated by by the nagging, by the, the constant bickering and putting down that happens. in the, We still use these advanced tools for the same things, the same messed up life goals that have always colored human history. We're no closer. So friends, if you're hung up on the foolishness of the cross, I ask you, are the things you are locking in on in place of the cross any better suited to handle the problem of your death or the problem of the way we always treat each other? If not, then it could be time for you to become a fool for the sake of tasting the only power and the only wisdom that offers any real hope. That's the first paragraph, the first point for this morning. Why does the gospel seem foolish to us? Because it isn't offering us what we want. What we want is the problem, friends. And here's the second paragraph. This... This paragraph gets at the foolishness of God by explaining to us a little bit more about why God chose a foolish message. It's one thing to ask, what is it that makes it foolish? It's the next thing to ask, well, why would God choose something that's foolish? And this paragraph makes it very clear that he did choose it, that it was on purpose. It wasn't his, it's like the best I could come up with, sorry if it doesn't seem very good to you. He wanted it to be foolish. And this passage tells us why that's the case. The foolishness of God, here's the, here's the simple answer. Why God chose a foolish message, it's, here's the reason. Because the foolishness of God in his methods here 
clarifies the glory of God. The foolishness of God clarifies the glory of God. Notice who it is that comes to believe. Look at verse 26. It's not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. These aren't trendsetters. They're not trustworthy early adopters. Note even what's more prominent here. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. And he chose what's low and despised, what has no money, no noble birth. Nobody wants these people. He chose them in order to shame and bring to nothing the things that are. And verse 29 gives us the reason that God chose to do these things on purpose, why he chose this message and these people. Verse 29 says, so that no human being might boast in the, pro- in, in the presence of God. He chose this way to make it clear that when his power does deliver, it was not our wisdom that led us to it, but his grace and his grace alone. What you, want, what you might not see on the surface here, but what's under the surface, is that Paul's kind of riffing on a paragraph out of Jeremiah He quotes it at the very end. In verse 31, that quote is from Jeremiah chapter 9, but really the whole paragraph is built on Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah was preached to a a community that was in turmoil. There was a lot of turnover. They had been captured by the Babylonians. There there were options for them now in a way that there weren't before. Who are you going to believe? What are you going to trust? Who are you going to be in this new world that you find yourself in? And Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast in his riches. Don't Don't go after wisdom. That's a dead end. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. You think you're strong? You're not. Don't go down that road. And let not the rich man boast in his riches because you aren't rich enough. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what Jeremiah 9 calls us to. And that's what Paul's drawing from when he writes this paragraph. Look, same categories, different words. God chose What is foolish, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. He chose what is weak, let not the mighty man boast in his might. He chose what is low and despised, let not the rich man, the man of noble birth, boast in his riches, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verses 30 and 31 sum it up for us. Here's why God did this. He wanted to leave no question in anyone's mind that it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. That it is Christ Jesus and him alone who has become to us wisdom. And in his wisdom has given us righteousness, his righteousness, sanctification, his holiness, redemption, his redemption of us by his blood and not by our power. God wanted to make that clear so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord and in him alone. We were made to boast, friends. Boasting is normal. It's part of what we're what we were created for as human beings. The problem is that ever since our first consciousness, we've been boasting in all the wrong things, refusing to give to God what he deserves. And God has chosen to save us anyway, but he's chosen to do it in a way that we cannot make the same mistake again, in a way that it will be absolutely clear to all who are saved that this foolishness is the power and the wisdom of God, and that settles the deal. Now, In the last couple minutes I've got here, I want to make sure this point is clear. It might still be a little bit abstract for you. I want to point to a couple of things that I think will make it clearer for you. God chose a foolish message. I want to show you, I want to, I want to say quickly why this is such good news for everybody. And then I want to say specifically why it's good news for you if you struggle with doubt. 
That's where it's really helped me. Why is good news for everybody that God has chosen to save in a way that makes it clear it's all about him and not about us? And on the surface, that doesn't necessarily look like good news. You know, when I was, when I was preparing for it, I couldn't get out of my mind the Seinfeld episode where Costanza uh, get, gets upset when Susan gets credit for the big salad that he actually bought for Elaine. You guys remember that one? He's just like cra- craving the credit that he thinks is his due. And we can read this passage where God is building a system to make sure he gets the credit for it and think that it's petty the way George is petty. And it, but it isn't, friends. That's not it at all. Listen, we need to change our metaphors. I think it, in the abstract, in the abstract, it, would, it seems better to us if we're going to be millionaires that we are the ones who earned our millions. If you, had, if you had the choice, in the abstract, you can inherit these millions you can earn them because you came up with some new crafty startup idea and it takes off. Which one do you choose? Well, I want the one that I get credit for, right? I want, that, that's natural in us. But let's change the metaphor. Let's say you find yourself lost at sea and five miles from shore. Now, in the abstract, you'd still prefer that if you're going to get the shore, well, I'd rather be the guy who swims the five miles than the guy who gets picked up and carried. Right? In the abstract, I still want the credit. But in the concrete reality, when you find yourselves two and a half miles in, in choppy water, on, trying to make it the extra two and a half miles, and you know you don't have it, and a boat comes up and offers to, to take you in. Now, is the fact that that boat gets the credit going to bother you then? When you've gotten a concrete, face-to-face, tangible and tasteable sense of your true condition then whether or not you get credit for your salvation goes out the window and you embrace the fact that you don't have to do it as good news, even though it means that the boat and not you get the credit for it. The fact that God has built a system that points to his glory is good news for us when we know that we are out of strength, that we're perishing, that we can't do anything about it. In fact, it becomes a source of sweet rest to us. Here's the last thing I'll say. That's a sort of general category, all of us in here, we've got to realize that this, this God-glorifying foolishness, this fact that God has stacked the deck to make sure it's clear that he's responsible for our salvation is good news for us because it means we don't have to do it for ourselves and we can rest in him. That's true for everybody. Now, I want to apply it in, in two minutes to one category. I've been a, a doubter a lot of my life, and this passage has become one of my go-tos when I struggle because it reminds me that my doubt, my, my sense that the gospel is foolish in that moment is not unexpected and that it's a gift to me from God. Here's what I mean by that. I, am, I have an irrepressible desire to figure things out. That, that, is, just, that is my sort of OCD thing that I do. I just, I, my mind just can't let things go. It just turns on, this, on, on ideas that I can't quite figure out. And Lindsay will tell you it, makes her, it drives her crazy. I have an awful time committing to something or accepting something when I don't have it figured out or solved or explained. Another way to put this is that I trust in my intellect. That's where my security stands and falls. I get, I'm okay with something when I've got it all figured out. It's a kind of self-salvation by thinking. I found tremendous freedom in this passage that tells me to give that up. I don't think this passage tells me to embrace something that even though sound thinking and clear 
in clear experience tell me it can't be true. I, I, don't, say it's, I don't think this passage is saying, yeah, I get that it's, that it's ridiculous, it can't be true, but just believe it anyway. That's not what it's saying. Think, use your mind to the glory of God. What this passage tells me is that I'm called to embrace something even though my sound thinking and my clear experimentation can't prove it to me once and for all. This passage tells me that God made it this way because he doesn't want me to get to boast in my wisdom. Because friends, if this, was, if this was provable, then it would only belong to those smart enough to work themselves there, right? God would be a God of the wise instead of a God of the weak and the foolish. He doesn't want me boasting in part because he doesn't want me resting in my wisdom, which is only as secure as the next good argument that I hear just around the corner. He wants, he wants a security that's rooted in him and his unchanging promises. I guess here's the way I'd summarize it. Doubt is a spiritual as well as an intellectual problem. It's about what we want. It's about what we want, what we desire, what we're looking for, as much as it's about what we think. And if you're hung up, then it may be what you need to do is pray. Simply pray that God would give you a taste of your true condition before him, that his wisdom would show you your sin for what it is, and that seeing your sin for what it is, you would see Jesus' cross not as offensive, not as primitive, not as irrelevant, but as beautifully liberating. That, friends, is a wisdom that comes only from him. He is the only one who will ever get credit for somebody tasting that. So it may be that you need to stop turning your wheels and pray that God will give you eyes to see. I'm going to pray that for us now as we close. Father, we can't see on our own. Sin colors our eyes, shapes everything we see. We are looking for things that are going to give us a right to boast. And that keeps us from seeing you. And we know from experience we can't fix that. Our only hope is your promise that you have chosen those who are low chosen those who are foolish, chosen those who have no strength. And we pray that in your grace and mercy you would choose to speak to us today and to encourage our hearts with the truth of your word for your name's sake that we might boast in you. Amen.